This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with your host, Dr. Tony Huang. Today, I'm with Dion Nicholas. Dion, can you give a quick introduction about yourself? Thanks, Tony. Excited to be here. As mentioned, I'm Dion Nicholas. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Forethought, and we are the generative AI platform for customer support. My background prior to this, grew up in Toronto, I've been fascinated with computers and AI for just about ever. And I've always been focused on this problem of how can AI help people get their most important questions answered? Particularly it was for me in school. And then beyond that, thinking about how to do that for customers and in business has been my passion in life. Great. So I'm told that you've actually raised over $90 million in venture capital funds. Like when did this happen? And I guess who were the key players in that? Yeah, I started Forethought. We actually were incorporated in what, September of 2017. And then we spent about a year in stealth before launching a TechCrunch Disrupt in September 2018. And we were fortunate to win the TechCrunch Disrupt Battlefield competition in, in 2018. And so that journey was what kicked off a lot of the interest in investors. So our first ever investor was K9 Ventures. They led our pre-seed round in 2017. And then after launching from stealth at Disrupt, NEA led our Series A. They're probably one of the top VC funds on the planet from investing in like Databricks, Robinhood, folks like that. And then they led our Series B in 2020, right around the start of the pandemic. And then we've also raised from just a host of like luminaries uh, across tech, including the CEOs of Qualtrics, of Carta, folks like Ashton Kutcher and Guy Series Sound Ventures, and Robert Downey Jr. That's really cool. So what were the challenges that you encountered when you're trying to secure funding for an AI-focused company? Yeah, today AI is all the rage thanks to GPT, which is, I think, not really good for the industry. But if you rewind five years ago and four years ago, AI wasn't actually that hot, so to speak, right? One challenge we had was just trying to explain why using AI, using neural networks, deep learning, and kind of modern natural language understanding were actually going to be competitive advantages and fundamentally change the industry. In our space and customer support, the state of the art prior to this AI boom was chatbots, right? A hard-coded decision tree-based chatbots. And the hard thing was actually just trying to explain why that wasn't AI, because they used the phrase AI, they called themselves AI bots, but at the end of the day, they were really just low code or no code builders for creating these scripts, almost like IVRs, or when you call in customer support, it's like press one for billing, press two for, for support. That was basically what we were seeing with chatbots. And so it, it took a little bit to convince people that AI was going to be the future and, and really show how that would transform the actual end user experience. Yeah, about three years ago, I was in contact with a bunch of companies and they wanted to show off all of their AI tech. And when I dug deep into what they were doing, I found out that they were just using like decision trees or something like that in order to to like actually do the heavy lifting on their product. And I had to sim down and tell them like, decision trees aren't AI. Like you, you have to keep <laughs> that, like those two things separate. They're like decision trees are like the most basic form of machine learning that you could do. 
And they were just running with it because that was like the hot thing. They wanted to like market themselves as AI companies. And that was, that was very difficult for me, at least to try to convince them that AI is actually like neural networks, which is that actually, which is what powers a lot of the like computer vision and the natural language processing products that we're seeing right now. Like for instance, chat GBT, which is very popular. So that's like my side story of like my work history yeah. with, with companies that were trying to get on the AI hype train. So I'm curious on your, like your take on how you envision like the integration of AI into the workplace right now, you know, AI is very hot and everyone's using it, whether or not you know how it works or not. Everyone and their mom has probably been on like chat GBT and they've probably been using it for their work. In fact, there was a survey that was done where it showed like over half of the, the respondents wrote that they actually used some form of chatbot or some form of intelligent system for their work without telling their bosses. So like, how do you envision the workplace integrating AI moving forward? Yeah, it's funny because AI really hit smack dab into the mainstream in the last year. But AI practitioners like you and me, we know that AI has been around for so long and it's it has this opportunity to radically up-level human potential. And that's the thing I'm most excited about. In terms of the workplace, I see it in three ways having an impact. The first is augmentation. What we're going to find is that most importantly, people are going to be able to take the jobs that they're doing today already and do them faster, better. So we're already seeing that. Imagine whenever you have to write an email or a blog post, being able to run some of the content through like a chat GPT or another AI. In our world in customer service, agents using our assist tool to be able to write responses and things like that. So I think like all of that is just going to get augmented. Everyone's jobs are going to get better. The second is going to be through um, what I call automation, right? Which is just now we're going to see certain jobs being able to be almost offloaded to the AI, right? So in the chatbot world, now being able to take AI and really solve customer problems or beyond, right? You can think about it in legal, contract review, things like that. There's going to be so many ways that, that jobs themselves are going to be able to be offloaded to the AI. And then the third, which I think is actually really exciting, is that I think AI will actually go and create new economies, create new jobs and, and new work. Like this job of prompt engineers probably in 100 years or whatever going to replace the concept of a software engineer, which didn't exist 100 years ago and so on and so forth. So I think every time you see a new shift in, in entire economies, right, from, from pre-electricity to electricity, then to the internet and out to this AI era, and I truly believe it is a similar monumental shift, you're going to see actually new jobs and new shifts happening in how people work, how people live, and all of the economies surrounding that. Yeah, like right now, I, I'd say everybody is like an accidental text prompt engineer if you've used ChatGPT. And yeah. you, know, you basically have to understand how that works and play around with it. Everyone's trying to figure out how this thing is going to benefit them as the technology is being developed. So it's like the Wild West right now. So I'm interested in like one of your perspectives is that employees need to be or get used to the idea of AI being helpful like how can organizations like foster a positive mindset towards AI adoption, like amongst their workforces? Because on the flip side, you have the naysayers who are like really scared about using AI because they can be replaced by it. Like how do you get people to be more positive about using this like really cool tech to be able to help out the, the company and also use it to upskill themselves into uh, more advanced skill sets? 
Totally agree. It is actually worth to start acknowledging the fears, right? Like I said, even in kind of that three-step process, some things, some AI is going to augment work, some is going to automate work, and then some is going to create new work. And I think the sum total of all that will be way more jobs, way more opportunities, and just more potential for humanity. But somewhere in there, there are going to be jobs that don't don't exist in the same way or do get shifted. And so it is worth recognizing that, hey, like in the short term change, regardless of what that change is, can be disruptive. That's like the definition of disruption. And, and, and so once you get over that and recognize that, then adopting the mindset of it's okay to be part of that disruption, right? And so I do agree with people leveraging ChatGPT in any way they can when it comes to as a creative aid, this is the first time technology is able to answer back. And, and in, in a sense, most of the time technology is something you program and then it goes and does the job and you might get diagnostics and feedback, but now you actually get the technology itself being able to act like a, a muse or a, a creative assistant or teammate, right? And so I think leveraging that will mean the people who do that are actually the people who are going to accelerate their careers fastest. I think there's this joke and I don't know whether I agree with it or not. But it's like, it's not that AI is going to be coming for your job. It's going to be people who are leveraging AI are going to be coming for your job. Um, but I say that in jest because I genuinely believe more opportunity will be created, but it is something to know. Embrace the change is actually a good thing. And it's okay. Maybe you won't have to be the one, you know, writing these reports anymore, but more likely than not recognizing you probably didn't want to write those reports anyway. So now you can up-level and answer what is the next job. So I would embrace the tools. And then I guess I like my threes, but step one is embrace the tools for your own personal work. Step two is figure out as soon as humanly possible, how to leverage AI in your product, right? Which is, I've seen this with some big companies. You saw Instacart leveraging AI for like meal recipe planning and things like that, building it directly into the app. If you're, if you sell a fitness product, figuring out how you can use AI to, to do like uh, fitness planning or whatever it is, there's so many different use cases. And so using AI as a competitive advantage for your business, I think is, is step two. And one of the cool things that OpenAI did for the industry is honestly, it wasn't that they invented this cool new AI, which they also did, but it was that they wrapped it in a beautiful API, right? This chat interface for the users, but also just like an API for developers. Like it takes five lines of code to start incorporating some level of large language model into your products now. So I would say do that. And then the third thing that I would say is start figuring out how to leverage AI in your operations. So it may not be your core product. And I, as a vendor of AI, don't recommend building AI for your operations. I actually think if you have an engineering team, build that for your core product, but for things like marketing, for things like customer support, for things like your finance, your legal, the back office part of your companies starting to leverage AI there more, hopefully using a vendor like a forethought or really any, anyone else that will start to give you efficiency. So you can start to uh, divert more resources into your core product. And so I think those are the three ways that I would tell people like today, just start leveraging it, right? Whether you're an IC or an executive, that's how you can start to leverage AI and be part of the, the wave rather than um, on the disrupted side. Yeah. So for on the flip side, for people who have fear of AI replacing their jobs, uh, which is quite quite a lot of people do, what are some steps that you, like, you should be able to take in order to mitigate those concerns? Yeah. Again, I think the first is like acknowledge the fear and then just recognizing it for what it is. Like The fear is there, I think, in the short term. Actually, not short term. It's actually only exists in the medium term. Because short term, everyone's still trying to figure out how to adopt AI. And I think you should be one of those people, just period. 
And that's no one's going to be like, oh, I have this AI tool now. I'm, I'm cutting 100 jobs. That's not how the world actually works. What will most likely happen is eventually they figure out how to use AI. And then as they're thinking about scaling, okay, for next year's headcount, instead of hiring 100 people, we only need to hire 50 because AI has cut 50% of the, the need there. And then the existing team can then get upskilled, right? And so more likely than not, again, the fear is there, but in that short-term period, that's like, that's just not how these things end up playing out. But then medium term, if I'm hiring hundred less next year, I'm only hiring 50, then that will mean on aggregate 50 less jobs. And so I do think the medium term, it does matter. And that's where I would say things like upskilling, it's also an imperative on AI companies, all of us in the industry to think about what does it mean to upskill workers? Like I think about in customer service, how do you move a customer service agent from just being pr uh, purely reactive to proactive? Turns out customer service is actually the, the single biggest gold mine for your product team. So can you get your agents to start um, creating the knowledge bases? Can you get your agents to start feeding insights back into your product team? And that in and of itself becomes a, an interesting job that I think a lot of people would, would want to take on. And so like thinking about this upskilling process, both internally for your teams, but also for yourself. And then, like I said, I think the long-term, what'll start to happen is new jobs will start to be created because new economies are going to be created, right? Like the same way, the moment we figure out how to do nuclear fission or fu fusion, sorry, like there's going to be a whole ton of nuclear fusion engineers. And that's like a tiny nascent thing that doesn't exist today, really. And I think with more kind of power at humanity's fingertips, we're going to also create more jobs and create more opportunities. But yeah, I think if you are one of the people who are have those legitimate fears, one, and think about embracing the technology. Two, think about those risks seriously, right? Because even down to things like security, data, privacy risks, like these are actually risks that do matter. I'm an optimist and, I, and we actually do a lot to actually um, mitigate those things, right? Like how do you think about PII in this use case, right? Like how do you redact PII before sending data over to any models, things like that. So these are legitimate risks that all have solutions. So I would see them in that problem solution lens rather than a, like a doomsday lens. Embrace those, solve the problems, and then figure out how you can springboard from there. Gotcha. Yeah. In terms of the idea of having a an AI firewall, look at your inputs and outputs for, that go into an LLM before it goes out to an external like vendor. That actually is a big hot topic that a lot of companies are trying to solve right now. So a lot of startups have spun up due to it. We had a guy on the show in the last couple of weeks that built out a a, an AI firewall company that did just that. And what I think is interesting is the role of trying to stay up to date in this rapid pace environment of AI development. There's, I don't know if, I don't know if you ever use this, but I use Langchain a lot, which yes. is a really cool Python library for chaining together large language models. And I follow up with that on, on a daily basis. And I've seen that thing iterate very rapidly, like to the point where Things that I use like document loaders or connectors, they get deprecated within weeks. And so I'd be using this like document loader and all of a sudden it'll just stop working because it got deprecated and then everyone's moved on to a different document loader. So like, <laughs> how, how would you stay ahead in terms of the knowledge and the skills in this like ever dynamic changing AI landscape? Oh, so true. Love Langchain. I'm a huge fan. We actually built a variant kind of a fork based on our own technology called auto chain that we open sourced on github so check it out if you ever get a if you ever get a chance but 
One thing that came to mind as you were talking about that, ironically, is like AI for AI. It sounds almost meta. The listeners are probably like, oh no, here he comes. But it's like cybersecurity, right? When security risks and, and hacking and all that became a thing, turns out you can use encryption and a lot of that, the state-of-the-art technology as ways to protect systems, right? And that's why things like penetration tests and HackerOne and all these things sprouted up where you could actually use the latest and greatest in, in hacking technology to build more robust and secure systems. And I think the same is going to be true for how we consume AI, right? You can use AI to consume news faster, right? To go and aggregate what's going on. What are all the GitHub repos? What are all the papers? And then pulling those in and then, and then summarizing it for you, right? There's this beautiful interplay between hey, AI is moving so fast, but at the same time, it's this technology that allows us to actually learn faster. And that's something that I've always been excited about when it comes to AI. And the same will be true even ironically with the risks and security risks and things like that, right? The AI that can detect and remove PII data before it goes into an LLM or watermark and, and figure out which signals came from which data sources so that you can cite your sources will actually be the best way to, to counteract AI plagiarism and, and things like that, like people using ChatGPT to cheat. And so I think that's like kind of a cool way of looking at it in that for every, when these technologies advance, it creates all these costs and all these problems or issues or potential risks. But then you actually think about, wait, that very same thing can be used to then go solve for the risk if harnessed in a good and powerful way. One last example of that is quantum computing. I know this is like an AI podcast, but like when you think about it, once we figure out how to build a quantum computer, all of our cryptography will be broken, right? But then also we're going to have quantum crypt cryptographic uh, algorithms, which are then like even like thousands of times more secure than what we have today. And so there's always this interplay. And I think that's why it's very important to, again, acknowledge the risks, but then figure out how do we solve for them. And oftentimes the technology that you're scared of, if used in the right way, can then go and help create the way to consume it in a safe way. Yeah. So at, as AI continues to evolve, like in your opinion, what industries or sectors do you see the most like impacted? For instance, I'll, I'll go first. I, I think uh, any industry that has to type very long, dull content like paralegals, script writers, content creation in terms of marketing, sales outreach, I think all those jobs right now are going to get impacted because all they do all day long is just write very long formatted content. And the things that are, in my opinion, like harder to to get automated is like things that require like creativity, things that require critical thinking, like the hard sciences, those are very difficult to, to automate. What's your take on which industries are going to be most impacted? Yeah, I definitely agree on the former take, which is like all of those things that require language as its form of communication going to be impacted for better or for worse, but overall by this AI craze. One thing I do want to call out though, is the reason for that is because what LLMs have done and LLMs are not the only AI, you and I know this, but I think the whole world has kind of forgotten, <laughs> but let's just use LLMs very specifically. The, what they've done is they've created this computing paradigm for language right? We used to have assembly language to try and speak in zeros and ones to computers and punch cards. And then we had C++ and Python, and they were becoming more and more abstract, but they were always computer languages to try and approximate the thinking process of language. We now have natural language as the computing paradigm. You literally just write a prompt as you would give it 
to a human. And I think that is the most powerful thing that LLMs have given us, this computing layer over natural language. So anything that is primarily about the information exchange of natural language, so lawyers, legal, sales, right? Customer service, it's, hey, how do I do this? Using language to convey information to solve problems are going to be the most right for leveraging, both benefiting from and being disrupted by AI, depending on how you look at it. On the second part, on your take on creative industries or things like that really not being disrupted, I think I would actually challenge that. I think that Langchain is actually the, the best example of this because, again, we think of AI now as LLM, so anything language-based, obvious, right? But when we go a step beyond the obvious, it turns out that language is also a thought paradigm, like humans think through language. Right. And so the reason Langchain is super powerful is that you can now do these things like chains of thought. You can literally ask an LLM a hypothetical question. If you were a customer service agent, what would you do in this scenario, given option, these hundred options? And then you can then take that back and then plug that into an API and get the AI to go and do that. And that's the basis of Autoflows, which we launched as part of our platform for customer service, where instead of doing all these decision trees, you can just specify in plain language, what's the end goal you want the AI to accomplish? What's my policy for refunds? What's my policy for password resets? And you let the AI have its own chains of thought, so to speak, in order to figure out, oh, okay, in order to issue a refund, I need to talk to the customer. I need to ask this. I need to ask for the order ID. Okay, I'm going to hit this API. And you see that play out and like the results have been amazing. And so I think by having... LLMs, you actually, if you take them just a step further, you can actually now start to approximate actions. You can start to approximate decision-making. And so there are going to be a lot more things in manufacturing plants, heck, theorem proving, right? In terms of you're trying to figure out the sparse tree of what theory is correct when it comes to this math problem or whatever, like you're going to be able to do that. We can't yet do that today, but it's actually not that far-fetched given things like Langchain and AutoChain exist that you're going to be able to get AI that can just go a step further and actually help us with creativity if we can define creativity in the narrow space of what language is, right? Hey, here are your options. Give me something back. And then taking those options and try to extrapolate from there and, and, and again, create that interplay or that muse with your creative agent. So I think it's a harder problem, but I think it's actually well within the realm of solvability uh, today. Yeah, I, I'd say like a lot of people right now, they're um, more comfortable with using um, traditional language when they're using LMs. But the thing that you want to get away from is there's so many other different ways that you could use LMs, not just with language. Like for instance, you could use it in the hard sciences, such as there's four types of bases found in DNAs, like adenine, cytosine, guanine, thymine, like those are actual letters that you could actually program into an LLM in order to get the next sequence in the base. So you can move away from using just your traditional English language and go into other things like DNA molecule ba uh, base sequencing or something yeah. else that's different that, that uses combinations of letters that are unique to a specific industry. I think that's going to be very hot. That right now, a lot of the uh, biotech companies are starting LMs in like big sequencing for DNA molecules. And I think we're going to see that propagate to different industries that are as uh, niche as that. What, what's your thoughts on that? That's so cool. Yeah. And, and I plus 1000 that, and that's exactly it, which is, yeah, language is, can be abstracted away. Anything that's sequential can be that actions like move left, move right, like self-driving car, whatever you want to call it. 
all of those things are going to be solvable now. And that's why you're seeing multimodal GPT and stuff like that. It's no longer just restricted to just the natural words that we can think of and speak today, right? And so, I don't know, I think it's just going to be exciting, but that also is, is where you get alpha. What I mean by that is a lot of people ask, should I, should my kids go into computer science? Should, if LLMs can just do all this stuff, should I even teach them how to code? The answer is yes, because of that, right? Like it actually takes a very narrow expertise to be able to translate what an LLM does in the abstract to, hey, I'm going to build an LLM for DNA sequencing, right? Because you can't just use the base model off the off the shelf. You're going to have to fine tune. You're going to have to also have some industry expertise. And you're also going to have a, a ton of data that can then train the, the model in order to do what it needs to be done. And so I think, again, that's going to happen in dozens of different industries. I think like the world is just going to look different in 50 years. I wouldn't be surprised if somehow a few hops away, we figure out space travel on, on the way there. Elon's probably working on that already, but you know what I mean? Uh, just like all of this stuff is going to be more accessible with AI. So COVID-19, this pandemic has accelerated digital transformation. Like how does this impact the adoption of AI in, in your opinion? What trends do you foresee in like the post-pandemic era? Very true. I just had this really weird existential thought. Would we have AI and GPT today if we didn't have COVID? Unrelated, but it's like one of those butterfly effect questions. Maybe Sam Altman stays at Y Combinator. I'm just joking. But I think uh, OpenAI probably was on, on track to this beforehand. But the, the reason it's like an interesting question is like, what happened in the last four years really accelerated digital adoption. Like we saw this in customer service, right? People had to change a whole bunch of flights, were questions about their bank accounts, customer service just shot up. And with it, the need for digital adoption also shot up because everyone was working from home. And so I think the whole world is moving into this like digital data. And I have a feeling like we won't even really know the ramifications of COVID for another like five, 10 years. But I do think it's going to matter. And as we shift back to work, if that's a thing, I don't know if people are still going back or not. Like the jury's still out on that one. AI is going to have an impact, right? Because now entirely different ways of working have come about and people are looking to create advantages and things like that. And I don't know. I think it's like a, a weird time <laughs> nonetheless, but it's an exciting time to see how like AI and all of these technological advances are also mixing with the broader world, right? Like what is going on? What are the hard humanity focused problems that need solving? Yeah, I'd say COVID-19 has, has dramatically changed the digital transformation. Like before COVID, I would only hop on Zoom or Teams calls to talk with an offshore resource. Um, now everyone's on Zoom and like the most famous words are like, you're on mute or something like that. And so I'm very curious to see what's going to happen post-pandemic in terms of, are we still going to be doing like the same stuff we're doing now, or is there going to be like a new type of like hybrid work environment that will emerge that's post-pandemic that we haven't even thought of? This is a fun thought experiment to to see how this all transpires. And obviously it's only a matter of time before this happens. But I, so I'm also interested in your take on, based on your experience, what, what have you, what have been some like challenging aspects of scaling an AI-focused company? Because Typically, scale, scaling from like a POC to enterprise grade is that's a big jump, especially yeah. with now that you have a company that is AI powered. Like, what are some like challenging aspects? How'd you overcome them? Any cool like insights you want to tell? 
Yeah, very cool. I think, yeah, first thing is innovation and scale. Like, how do you continue to innovate at scale? OpenAI has made that a lot easier, which is really exciting. But in general, like when we were just starting out, like figuring out how to build an entire mass like indexing engine so that you could fine tune and train models on a customer's data was like about as hard as creating like a search engine like Google, right? That was basically the problem that we had to solve in the early days. So I think figuring out like how you scale and then talent on top of that, you still need a product engineering team because you have to translate everything into just like stuff that matters for the company or for your customers. But then at the same time, having a dedicated machine learning or research team so that you can start to do those iterations on stuff that don't yet exist, publish your papers, publish patents, but always bringing that back to a customer focus because you don't like you don't have the resources to do both at scale. So that's always been fun and like this balance that I think we've had to do well in order to succeed thus far, which has been like, marry the, hey, we're going to always be at the forefront of the state of the art, but we're always going to do that in a way that puts customers first and we're actually building products that matter for them. The um, second thing that's weirdly interesting, and I think it's actually going to be more true even now, is product marketing. It's like a weird statement to make, right? For an AI company, marketing matters. But no, I think one of the things that OpenAI did extremely well was the marketing behind ChatGPT. Like the GPT 3.5, the model behind the product, was around for a year and a half before ChatGPT came, but it was the fact that it was packaged up in a beautiful user interface in a way that humans and consumers could use at the same time as having an API for developers that I think cracked it open. That's what, that is like the, the thing we owe the success of AI to today. And I think the same is true for building a product company, being able to articulate, hey, yeah, we have this cool AI thing, but like why that cool AI thing is differentiated and why that matters to the end user, why that matters to the administrator of say a customer support system and why that matters to the support team. Those are actually hard problems that you realize you have to iterate on every three to six months. And yeah, I would say those are probably the, the most interesting problems of scale. And then, sorry, the last thing, when you go to enterprise security, being able to build an enterprise grade system. Some of the things I mentioned before, like we actually literally built out a whole system for redacting PII so that when data was sent to us, you can actually, you, you don't need to know, hi, my name is John in the support ticket. You just need, hi, my name is blank. Here's my issue. And the model can perform just as well without knowing that. So being able to do that in a way that gives customers and, and businesses security and peace of mind was really, I would say, a fun technical problem to solve as well as an organizational one. Let's say, Dion, if I need to get in touch with you, like, how would I do that? Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to learn more about Forthought for customer support, go to www.forthought.ai and request a demo. I'm available on LinkedIn as well as Twitter, Instagram, all of the sources at Dojideon, D-O-J-I-D-E-O-N. And I'm always excited to chat with folks about AI and Connect. That's pretty cool. What are your thoughts on like the trends and developments that you anticipate in the AI landscape moving forward? I'll, I'll start. So I think that the next hot thing is going to be AI-powered wearables. Recently, this past week, there was a company that released, there was like a thing called an AI pin where you could wear it. And it was powered by OpenAI's ChatGPT. It was, it did all of this, it's computing online. And it was moving away from the chat interface and going into human interactions. So I thought that was a cool next step in, in terms of iterations of of trying to bring LMs into the real world. What are your thoughts on like future predictions on what the next hot thing's gonna be in the LM landscape? 
Oh, that is super cool. Yeah, I, I do think, as we talked about a little earlier, it's just like the shift away from thinking of LLM as large language model versus like large, like sequential computing model, right? So anything that has a time-based sequence, whether it's stocks or whether it's in human interactions or actions, I think that's going to be very important. And so that with that, you'll see the rise of wearables and other things. The other thing that is related, but actually came to mind was the rise of reinforcement learning. And so I think we are still in a place where you train an AI model on a ton of data, and then you release it to the wild and, and voila, right? Even like the original GPT was trained on this snapshot of September, 2021. But the one of the innovations that made GPT really powerful was reinforcement learning through human feedback, the ability to take it and take conversations, get people to say, was this good or bad? And then it, it got like superhuman, you know what I mean? And I think the same was true when um, released AlphaGo. It was through playing games against itself that it became the world's best Go player. And I think we're early on that curve. And it's also applicable to the wearables thing that you just mentioned, but the ability to not just take a static model and then just hope it works, but like something that's re reacting to real world feedback and then training itself and learning from there. There's also, I think there's going to be entire businesses built on this. I think there's going to be entire uh, models, new LLM or whatever other models built on it. But I think it's also a paradigm that the whole world needs to shift to because it's already powerful with the static stuff. But I think the future is being able to do AI in real time in a reinforcement learning context. So I would say watch out for that. Oh, you know what would be really cool if you're able to shrink down an LM to to be placed into an edge device like a phone. If you put oh. LMs on a phone and it was capable enough to actually do a task, that would be killer. That would be like extremely revolutionary. I totally agree. I cannot wait. So it's such an exciting time. Well, thanks uh, for joining the show, Dion. And until next time, stay curious. <laughs>